Welcome for those of you who are with us, visiting. We're glad that you are here. Our desire here at the Cornerstone Bible Church is to exalt and to proclaim Christ. We've done that in song, and now we turn to what is the main event, which is the preaching of His Word. It's not just a a man standing here giving a speech. It is God, through a man, speaking to you with His Word and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so let us pray. Let us ask for Him to work in our hearts as we open up His Word. If you are one of His people, tune your ears. And if you are not yet one of His people, ask the Lord to speak to you. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16? We'll read His Word that we'll be preaching from today. And then we'll pray. Chapter 16, verses 5 through 12. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus with Pen- until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he's doing the Lord's work as I also am, so let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. God, as we open your word, it is our heart's desire to hear your voice. It's through your spirit that we know that you can speak to each one of us. You can speak with us. You will speak with us consistently with your word here, but there are so many ways in which your spirit, who knows us intimately, can apply it to our lives. And in the, and in the context of this work, we're looking at being diligent in the Lord's work. So focus, we pray, on our efforts in being in working in your field to show us how we might be diligent in doing so. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Paul's defense of the bodily resurrection of believers, which took all of the last chapter, chapter 15, it ended with this admonishment to the Corinthians. He said, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil and is in is not in vain in the Lord. That's verse 58 of chapter 15. And Paul's not asking the Corinthians to do anything that he himself is not willing to do. And as we see from our text, he also is abounding in the work of the Lord. He says in verse 10, he speaks of Timothy. He says, Timothy's doing the Lord's work, as I also am. So we know that at that time, the time that he wrote this letter to the Corinthians, that Paul had spent the last 11 years traveling over 10,000 miles through Eastern Asia and Europe. He'd done so on three separate missionary endeavors. He stopped at at least 65 cities that we know of, and he established 14 churches. And he did this all, mind you, by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power to do this was not in himself. He was preaching the message of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. 
And as a result of that, which is the gospel, as he says in Romans, the power of God for salvation, the church was born and it was growing. And it's the church of Jesus Christ. Those who have been bought by the the blood, the shed blood of Christ. And out of this are emerging people who desire to serve and worship and work for the Lord. And Paul is going and he's teaching and he's training. And we know from his letter to the church in Rome that he wasn't ready to bring it into a close. It wasn't time to coast or to retire. The book to the Romans, the letter to the Romans was written a year or so after this letter. And even in that letter, at the end, he mentions that he had his sights set on Spain. So Paul was indeed doing the Lord's work. And, and in this rather unassuming passage that we've just read, there's not a lot of fireworks that go off when you read that. You might just blaze right through it and not even really pause here. Yet in this unassuming passage, we're given a brief glimpse at just how diligent Paul was in that work. And the title of the sermon is being diligent in the Lord's work. It's a conclusion of a sermon that we began last week when, and we're learning here from Paul's example that our part in the Lord's work is to serve Him diligently. Our part in the Lord's work is to serve Him diligently. And there's several principles for us here in this passage that help us to appreciate what the Lord's work entails and how we can be diligent in doing it. So first, the Lord's worker must make plans. Verse 5, he says, I will come to you after I go through Macedonia. So Paul is conveying his plans to come to them by way of Macedonia. Uh, and he's, he's in Ephesus, which is uh, across the Aegean Sea from Corinth. And he's going to go up and around and through Macedonia because he wants to visit churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, um, he hasn't been there in several years, so he's using this opportunity. And so while Paul is busy ministering in Ephesus, where he wrote this letter, he's also planning the next steps in his ministry. And this is how you remain diligent in doing the Lord's work. You serve faithfully where you are, while at the same time, you're also making plans for future ministry. Now, making plans is not some uniquely Christian idea, not, not at all. Most worthy endeavors, be they spiritual or secular, they begin with a good plan. However, you need to understand that you will never be diligent in the Lord's work if all you ever do is have good intentions. It's not enough to intend to do something. You must act. And if it is truly your desire to be involved in the Lord's work more than you are now, then you must make a plan for yourself that takes you from where you are now to where it is that you desire to be. So let, re- let me recommend this as a starting point. Prayer. Action item number one on your plan to being diligent in the Lord's work, it should begin by diligently, genuinely, humbly asking God to show you what He is doing and if he would include you in it. Too many people tell God what they're going to do for him. As if, you know, God is some needy recipient of a GoFundMe campaign. God is not the needy one. He's the sufficient one. He's the fount of all blessings. And so humble yourself. Ask God to show you what he's doing. 
ask God if He might make you, give you a part in what He is doing. But you are the Lord of the harvest. Can I, can I work, Lord, in one of your fields? Would you let me plant seeds for the gospel? Would you let me water seeds that others have planted? Lord, would you please use me for the glory of your name, for the building of your kingdom? Your son bought me with his blood. I am yours. Use me however and wherever you see fit. Now, as we make our plans to do the work of the Lord, we must accept that our plans, as good as we might think they are, they may not be the Lord's plans. Notice the language that Paul uses as he communicates his plan to the Corinthians. Perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. So the second principle that will help you be efficient and diligent in the Lord's work is do not presume. Specifically, do not presume that your plan is God's plan. As a good planner, right? You, you, as a good planner, however a good planner you might be, you cannot make the future come together as you want it to. You must leave room for the Lord to revise your plans as He sees fit. And as it turned out, God did change Paul's plans several times, in fact. <clears throat> Before leaving Macedonia, for Macedonia from Ephesus, Paul ended up going directly over to Corinth. He had to deal with a significant problem that came up. And that visit turned out to be both disastrous and disheartening. We only know about this visit because Paul alludes to it in 2 Corinthians, the letter that we also have that follows 1 Corinthians. And as Paul departed, he apparently sent a very difficult letter to them. And it says uh, he, he refers to that difficult letter only in 2 Corinthians. It's the only reason we know it's there. He, it says he wrote out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears. So after that unexpected change, he, he told the Corinthians that instead of going through Macedonia, hey guys, I'm going to come back to you guys in Corinth, and from there I'm going to go up to Macedonia, and then I'm going to come back to you, and then I'm going to take that collection that we were talking about and take it to Jerusalem. That was plan number two. Well, the Lord changed those plans. Paul ended up going up through Greece. And there he says, he tells us in 2 Corinthians, he says, my life was endangered up there. And in the end, when he did actually return to Corinth, he pretty much went about it about the same way as he originally planned. And the Corinthians saw this vacillation in their eyes as, as evidence of Paul's indecisiveness, even a lack of integrity. But as Paul said to them here in chapter 16, he says his plans would come about only if the Lord permits. He left room for the Lord's will in his planning, and so must we. We must not presume that our plans are God's plans. He knows what is best, and so we must approach our planning with the appropriate amount of humility and flexibility. We're to seek to be faithful workers in God's fields, planting and watering gospel seeds, knowing that the Lord alone is the one who causes the growth. And so the Lord's workers, they make their plans, do so to the best of their abilities, 
while not presuming their plans are the Lord's. So that's a quick recap of what we covered last week. Let me give you a third principle now from Paul's example in this passage for effectiveness and diligence in the Lord's work. The Lord's worker must thirdly be committed. He must be committed. Paul's made his desire to come to Corinth clear, right? He's telling them, I will come to you. I will stay with you. I'll even spend the winter with you. He does this in, in uh, but in verse 7 though, that's where we see that this is, this is more than just something that he felt obligated to do. It was something he desired to do. Verse 7, he says, I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time. So despite the several challenges that Paul faced from these Corinthian believers, right, that we've been looking at as we've gone through this book over the last several years, Paul was committed to their growth, through their growth as disciples of Christ. And so when it came to ministering to Christ's people, Paul was anything but superficial and irresponsible. The proof is seen in his willingness to set aside significant time to personally be with them so that he might preach and to teach to to them about Christ, lovingly correct their sinful attitudes, model for them what it means to follow Christ. And Paul was committed to making disciples of Christ amongst these Corinthians. You know, a mindset of commitment to the Lord's work is reflected in your commitment to what Christ has commissioned His church to do. Has Christ issued any directives that you can think of to His church? Anything come to mind? Has the Lord told us what we are to be about? Well, you all know He has. You can probably tell me the chapter that we're going to turn to right now. Matthew 28. Go back to the Gospel of Matthew. And let's look at this commission of the Lord's to His church. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. This is... After the resurrection. Before his ascension. So these are his last words to his disciples. And this is what he tells them. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Now, I want you to stay here because I want to refer to this. See, Christ has charged His disciples to make disciples of all the nations, right? The end result of this commission is what we just read in the Scripture in Revelation 5 and sang about. When every tribe, tongue, people, and nation is standing before the Lord saying, Worthy is the Lamb. So, He's already told you that this will be a successful commission. What's your part in this going to be? You can sit back on the sidelines if you want. But this is going to happen. And you can be a part of it. So he's commissioned his disciples to make disciples of the nations. How? Well, they're to proclaim the gospel. They're to call the lost to trust in the crucified and risen Savior for their salvation. And those who believe, well, they're to be marked as disciples. How? How? Through, the water, through baptism with water 
baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And those disciples are then matured in their faith in Christ by being taught to obey all that the Lord commands His people. And then faithful Christians are the ones who will turn around and make other disciples. And faithful churches make disciples. What does this commitment here? What is this commission and the commitment that that we should give to it? What does it look like in practical terms? First, what must a church be committed to in order to be faithfully making disciples? If faithful churches make disciples, what will it look like for a church to be faithful to this commission? And I like what H.B. Charles has laid out on this subject. So here are the ten commitments of a church that are committed to making disciples. The first commitment is to Christ-exalting worship. Christ-exalting worship. Jesus declared, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And this claim is at the core of the commission. Because if verse 18 is not true, then verses 19 and 20 are meaningless. This is the basis of our confidence to carry out this commission to be involved in it, to invest our lives into this. Because He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Because Christ reigns over all places and over all peoples, we are to make Christ-worshipping disciples in all places and amongst all peoples. Our worshipping disciples, or or, excuse me, our spirit, our spiritual power to go out in His name and proclaim His gospel is His sovereign authority. That's why. Our church, therefore, it should be a Christ-worshipping church where we joyfully and reverently and submissively worship the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second commitment of a church committed to making disciples is personal evangelism. Personal evangelism. This is, there's just one command in the Great Commission. Make disciples. That's the one command. This is the singular mission of the church. Disciples are made through responding in faith to the gospel message. There is no other way a disciple of Christ can be made. You can say you're a disciple, but if you haven't embraced and received the gospel, you're not a disciple. You're from the outside looking in. The only way a disciple of Christ can be made is through the gospel, being shared and received. Disciples are made through responding in faith to the gospel message. And that means that a disciple-making church must be a soul-winning church. And Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, he says. And our mission as a church, therefore, it must not be just to get the gospel right but to get the gospel out. The third commitment is to world missions. And this means going beyond just making disciples in our community, but also in all the nations. And so our mission here, our mission field here at the Cornerstone Bible Church, it's as small as northern Sacramento, but it's also as large as the 7 billion people on this planet. Natomas needs the gospel, But so does every other community in the world. And the one who has all authority deserves and demands to be worshipped by all nations. 
Churches committed to making disciples, therefore, they are committed to pray and to give and even to go to where the gospel has not yet gone. Fourth is a commitment to ethnic harmony. Christ's disciples consist of peoples of all nations. And by his death, Christ has redeemed a people who will come from every gender, every status, every ethnicity. And so embedded in the gospel mission is the call to harmony amongst all the peoples of the world. Harmony under the name and the banner of Christ and his love. And so a church that's committed to making disciples of the nations will seek to reflect the nations in its worship and its work and its witness. The fifth commitment is to biblical ordinances. Biblical ordinances. While many churches are consumed with new and novel strategies for attracting people, the Great Commission keeps us focused on the simple commands to baptize and teach. Baptism is not negotiable. As if baptism was somehow made up by the church. Baptism does not save you. It's the way that Christ commanded the church to mark those who would be his disciples. See, in baptism, the disciple pledges his or her allegiance to Christ and to his church. And so the first command that Christ gives a disciple is own him. Own him in baptism. The second command is to remember Christ through the Lord's Supper. First you own him. And then you remember him. These are the two ordinances of the church that we are to faithfully practice until he returns. And together they are the symbols of salvation that the church practices to illustrate what it means to be a disciple of Christ. You own him publicly in baptism and you gather together with his people to remember him regularly at the table. The sixth commitment is to the local church. The local church. A commitment to the Great Commission requires a high view of the church. See, we make disciples by leading lost people to trust the finished work of Christ for salvation. And once we bring them to Jesus, we're to bring them to church. Because it's there they publicly declare their faith in Christ through baptism. And when a new believer is baptized, he or she is identified with Christ as well as with his church. See, disciples don't baptize themselves. They don't jump in the tub and go up and down. Somebody does that. Through baptism, the church affirms the new believer's profession and faith. Likewise, disciples, they don't teach themselves. Disciples don't teach themselves. That's not at all... That's, that's not at all to discourage you know, spiritual growth through your own personal Bible study. That's not the point here. Disciples are to submit to other faithful disciples to teach them to observe all Christ's commands. And this happens through the local church. Baptism is a one-time initiatory rite. It's meant to mark the beginning of discipleship. The process of teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded is lifelong. And so the seventh commitment of a church that's committed to the Great Commission is biblical teaching. Biblical teaching. Man-centered worship services where the songs are all about me and my boyfriend Jesus. Pragmatic ministry philosophies. Feel-good preaching. That, my friends, is the recipe for drawing a crowd. 
a crowd that's looking to be entertained and will stick around as long as you continue to entertain them. That will not make disciples of Christ, though. A disciple-making church is a Bible-teaching church. We are to teach all that Christ has commanded, which requires a church to be sound, faithful, courageous, balanced, and systematic. And the goal of our teaching, it must be transformation, not merely information. We are to teach disciples to be doers of all the Lord commands, not merely hearers only. Commitment number eight is a commitment to lordship salvation. Lordship salvation. Sinners are saved through faith in Christ plus nothing and minus nothing. Jesus made it clear that the proof of saving faith is obedience to his commands. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? It's a misunderstanding of the gospel to think that one may trust in Christ for salvation without also submitting to him as Lord. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth, what? That Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can't come to Jesus for forgiveness of sin and then decide later on if you're going to submit to his authority. The one who saves is Lord. And you don't get a vote on that. A church committed to the Great Commission teaches disciples to submit to the Lordship of Christ. A commitment to the Great Commission requires a commitment also to one another. The ninth commandment, excuse me, the ninth commitment is to Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship. That is fellowship that is Christ-centered and gospel-driven. Jesus issued his commission to a group, right? Not to an individual. We never go alone into the world to make disciples. We go together. Through baptism, individuals declare their commitment to Christ and to his people. Teaching all that Christ commanded is more than just learning a subject matter. It is a life upon life. And disciples teach other disciples to live in obedience to Christ. Jesus didn't teach in a classroom. He taught them as they walked with Him. So a church that makes Christian disciples is a church that prioritizes Christian fellowship. And by the way, just I mentioned it before, but that's why we call our midweek studies home fellowship groups. It's not home Bible studies. We believe wholeheartedly in biblical teaching. We're committed to that, but we're just as committed to Christian fellowship because we know that through that we admonish one another, we encourage one another, we speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we pray with one another, we bear one another's burdens. And you remove that, you can't walk with Jesus like like Christ intends. And so we're committed to Christian fellowship. The final commitment is to spirit empowerment. Spirit empowerment. Empowerment. Jesus promised here, he said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the omnipotent one of verse 18 is the omnipresent one of verse 20. Right? But Christ is doing more than just stating that he's everywhere. He's promising you and me. He's promising his personal and perpetual presence Wherever we go in the fulfilling of this commission to make disciples, I will be with you. 
He's doing more than just stating that. He's letting you know. He's promising you His presence. And this is possible through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Right? Christ commanded His disciples to be His witnesses after they received power from the Holy Spirit. His indwelling presence transformed them from the frightened disciples that we see into the bold witnesses that are going throughout the book of Acts proclaiming His name. In the same way, we cannot fulfill the Great Commission in our own wisdom, strength, and resources. Apart from His power filling us, our efforts will fail. So these are the ten commitments of a church that's committed to making disciples. Christ-exalting worship, personal evangelism, world missions, ethnic harmony, biblical ordinances, the local church, biblical teaching, lordship salvation, Christian fellowship, and spirit empowerment. Now, what should you be committed to, Christian? You are to be committed to a church faithfully seeking to make disciples through faithfully practicing these same commitments. Are you going to find the church that's perfectly doing all of this? No. Are you going to, should you look for a church that is faithfully committed to doing all of this? Yes. You demonstrate your commitment to Christ to be diligent in the Lord's work through committing to a church that is committed to these things that all reflect the Great Commission, what we are to be doing. You, you, you demonstrate that commitment in small ways. Cheerful giving. Humble serving. Ceaseless praying. Willing submission. And fearless going. And all of that is with under under the banner of the local church. This passage gives us just a small glimpse here of Paul's commitment to making disciples of Christ amongst the Corinthians, which is a reflection of his unwavering commitment to Christ. So after relating his plan to go through Macedonia and then spend considerable time in Corinth, Paul now relates why he's planning to stay on for a while longer in Ephesus. Uh, He says in verse 8, he says, I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, if any two sentences describe Paul's labors as a missionary of the gospel, these are them. On the one hand, a wide door for effective service has opened To me, on the other hand, there are many adversaries. That reflects Paul's ministry. Wide doors, many adversaries. And this brings us to the fourth principle that will help you be effective and diligent in the Lord's work. Expect opposition. Expect opposition. Now, speaking for myself, my first thought is to see opposition as a hindrance. Oh, man, they're not all lining up for us to do this and say this to them. Not the Apostle Paul. For him, opposition was more a challenge than it was a hindrance. Oh, we got some opposition? Come on, guys, this is where we need to go. As you follow Paul's travels recorded in the book of Acts, and you read the letters that he wrote during and after these three missionary journeys, you soon realize that Paul encountered opposition wherever he went. And this is because wherever he went, he brought the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And the gospel functions like a magnet. Right? What does a magnet do? It, it attracts the opposite force, but what does it do to the same force? It repels. And that's what you see happening wherever he goes with the gospel. Right? Those who love the darkness and hate the light, they're repelled by the gospel. While others who long for new life, deeper life, they're attracted to its powerful message of hope and grace and forgiveness. Where are you with the gospel, by the way? Are you, a, are you repelled by it because it exposes your sin? Like a light shining into some dark cave and you're seeing something ugly in there? And so you're like, yeah, this is stupid. This is stupid. Weak people need the gospel. Those who need crutches are who you find in churches. Or are you realizing in the midst of the gospel that you're hearing something that you need? I need forgiveness. I need purpose. I need to know why I'm here. God, did you make me? How can I get to you, God? To the gospel. The gospel tells you how. And if you're asking those kinds of questions, then God is drawing you. Don't ignore what He's doing. Don't shut down those questions. Seek answers. Where? Here's one place. Because surrounding you are people who have gone through that very same process. They went from haters and enemies and rebels to worshipers and lovers and disciples of the Lord Jesus. And it wasn't by their strength. It was by the power of the Gospel. We all have different stories. Those All those stories go through one narrow funnel. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Because there is no other way to the Father but through the Son. You've got to come by Him or you don't come at all. You've got to bow to Him. You've got to submit to Him or you don't come at all. It's through the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why you can expect opposition. If you're going to be preaching the Gospel, teaching the Gospel, sharing the Gospel, proclaiming the Gospel, then you will get opposition to those who don't want to hear the Gospel. You're either on one side or the other. Right? There is no neutral ground. You're not, eh, I'm on the fence about this whole thing. If you're not with him, you're against him. Do you really want to be against the one who has all authority and power? Come to him. Today's the day of salvation. Tomorrow is not promised. Right now, he's extending his offer of grace and pardon to sinners. Come now while you may. Now, when it comes to opposition to the gospel, any ministry that is faithfully preaching the truth about Christ, about sin, about grace and repentance and redemption and heaven and hell, yes, we include hell. It's not, it's not even popular in many churches to talk about hell anymore. Probably should have a few sermons about hell to remind ourselves that it is real. But we'll have to get to those sermons another time. I still have more to say on this topic. You're going to preach on these things and talk about these things. You're going to get opposition of some sort. Maybe in the form of just turning away or derision or laughter or just the, you know, well, that's good for you. And this is because the ruler of this world, 
Satan opposes the things of the Spirit of God. The same, that same spirit, that same mindset exists in the hearts of sinful men and women everywhere in the world. They're pawns of Satan. Now, they don't walk around, you know, you know, hail Satan or anything like that. They're not on Christ's side. They're pawns of the devil doing what he wants. That's the world system in which we live. His mindset is flowing through everything in this world. And that's why the Father, that's why we're admonished, don't love the things of this world. It's not of the Father. So the more a ministry proclaims Christ and His truth to the world, the more Satan, the more Satan will see it to be opposed by the world. That's what we should expect. Paul did not appear intimidated by the opposition that he faced. And that's not to say that maybe he had his moments of hesitation or concern, but the overall testimony of the Scripture, right? And it ended up, however he may have felt at one point or another, he did what he did. And that's what Scripture tells us about. And he did not back down. When opposition rose, Paul did not back down. In fact, he was all the more likely to dive in. And it might even be true that, the, as I said earlier, the presence of many adversaries in Ephesus was what convinced Paul... This is a wide door of opportunity here because there's a bunch of resistance in this direction. And so I think I'll stick around a little bit. Now what we know about Ephesus was that the city was famous for its location as being the location of the Temple of Diana, Artemis. And we know from Luke's account of Paul's ministry in Ephesus that he was making a considerable impact there. God was allowing Paul's preaching to be accompanied by what Luke calls extraordinary miracles, and catch this, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from the bo- for his body, excuse me, from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. Now that is not supposed to be like a philosophy of ministry here. We don't have the Apostle Paul and what he's doing to be able to take something from him and go heal somebody else with it. So anybody who's out there, and believe me, this was a big trend of televangelists. One guy in particular who's just a fraud, he, will, he, would, he needs a millstone hung around his neck because he's going to stand before God one day for the things he did in the name of Christ. All fraudulent. And this was one of his things. Prayer cloths, anointing oil, all that. All this, you know, make your then gift of faith. That was the whole idea, to get money. So this isn't like what we do now. We, we don't take this up. This was God working in a mighty way because he was an authoritative representative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if somebody could take a piece of Paul and take it over here and heal this person, then it'd be like, uh, I think we need to listen to this guy. And that's what they were doing. And they, he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so people were getting saved. One spectacular event that had impact was when seven brothers who were Jewish exorcists were trying to cast out evil spirits in the name of Jesus. But here's what they were saying. I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And so these aren't even followers of Christ doing this. They're just trying to cash in on what they see going on with Paul. And unfortunately for them, they found out that's not going to work. The evil spirits answered and they said this. This, Can you imagine you're in in the name of the Jesus that Paul preaches... Be gone, and then you hear from the person looking at you with crazy eyes, I recognize Jesus. 
And I know about Paul. But who are you? Here's what, here's what happened. Acts 9 says, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and subdued. There's seven brothers. And subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So as a result of Paul's preaching and miracles, many people were coming and confessing and even renouncing their practices. Even, even those who, who practice magic, and apparently there was a, apparently a, a, a big amount in this place, because when they came and they were bringing their books that they referred to for their magic, and they put them all in a center area and lit a fire to them, people were amazed. He says, because those books cost 50,000 pieces of silver. One piece of silver was basically a day's labor. 50,000 pieces silver. Luke summed it up the impact this way in Ephesus of Paul's preaching and ministry there. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Yes, it was. And this gives us some idea of this wide door of effective service that he's talking about. And Paul was excited about this. But what about the many adversaries? Well, we don't have the timing in the book of Acts to really line these things up. So we don't know. It could have been, if you remember, there was a whole deal in Ephesus where there was a big rage and, and um, uh, the, all the makers of the idols and stuff came together and, and were shouting out the name of Artemis. And all of this came about because of they just weren't having many people buy their souvenirs anymore. And they knew it was because of Paul's preaching. Now, that's certainly something that happened in Ephesus, but we don't know that that was the many adversaries it was referring to. So if we just go by what Paul did talk about, it's actually in 2 Corinthians. Go ahead and jump there. <clears throat> Chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. So this is the other letter. This is the follow-up letter. And he's talking about now, after he said, I'm going to come to you, got this wide door, many adversaries. Now he's kind of giving them an insight as to why plans changed. Here's why plans changed, guys. Chapter 1, verse 8 of 2 Corinthians. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Paul thought he was dead with whatever was going on. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. See, if we're going to be diligent in the Lord's work, we must expect opposition. We're not necessarily looking for opposition. But we must trust that if we face it, that God will supply the strength that we need to endure it and glorify Him in it. You know, there was a 16th century English preacher by the name of John Rogers. He has the distinction of being the first Protestant martyr under the reign of bloody Queen Mary. In January of 1554... Uh, by the way, the Protestant Reformation took place first, and then a Catholic queen was elected to reign over England, and she didn't hold back. She wanted England to be back under the auspices of the Catholic Church. And so that's why we call her bloody Queen Mary, because she didn't hold back in what she did to these Protestant missionaries. And here's uh, these reformers, and here's John Rogers, the very first one to die under her reign. 
And so in January of 1554, Rogers was sent to Newgate Prison. He remained there for a year. And then on January 29, 1555, he was sentenced to death. And up until that day, no one could tell how these English reformers uh, would act in the face of death. People doubted if they would you know, actually give their bodies to be burned for their faith in Christ. And on February 4th, the crowd has gathered now, and here comes John Rogers, and he's walking steadily and unflinchingly to what was going to be his fiery grave, and they couldn't help themselves. They erupted in applause. Applause for him. And on site was a French ambassador. And he wrote home this description of the scene, saying that Rogers went to his death, quote, as if he was walking to his wedding. I have no doubt that John Rogers took great courage from Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Turn over there. Follow along with me. Verses 7 through 11 of 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not despairing. We're persecuted but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. See, Paul's got it all. It's like, I'm in, the, I'm, I'm in it no matter what. I'm in it to win it. And if opposition comes, then that's the means through which God wants me to glorify Him. He'll give me the strength to do it. Because I exist for His glory. So we are going to face opposition if we're going to have that same mindset. If you are going to do the Lord's work diligently, then you must have your eyes wide open and not be shocked when the opposition shows up. Let's look at one last principle for doing the Lord's work effectively and diligently. Find partners. Find partners. Paul told the Corinthians earlier in his letter that he had already sent Timothy to them. He may even have been the one who delivered the letter to the Corinthians. Paul knew that he was sending Timothy into a challenging ministry situation. And we know as we've read through the letter of 1 Corinthians that Excuse me, that um, the Corinthians had, they had proved to have been, have been proud, self-sufficient, strong-willed. And so Paul also knows that in this letter, the one that we've been studying, the, the one that Timothy is going to be handing to them, that he sternly rebuked members of this church who are powerful members of Corinthian society, and they likely hold significant influence in the church. He's called for basic changes in their behavior, including their sex lives, social contacts, forms of worship, legal dealings. And Paul was aware enough of people to know that the Corinthians would likely show their acceptance of Paul's letter by how they treated the one who delivered the letter. And so he adds in these words here at the end of the letter, uh, back in 1 Corinthians 16. Verse 10. Now, if Timothy comes, and that's not like a, maybe he'll come, maybe he won't. It's more the idea of whenever Timothy comes. Like, I'm not telling you when he's going to show up, but he will. So when he comes, 
see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. So Paul's words have led some to believe that Timothy might have been somewhat of a timid guy. However, nowhere in the rest of Paul's letters or in the book of Acts where Timothy is mentioned frequently, is there any hint that Timothy was anything but strong and dependable and self-sacrificing in his evangelistic efforts just like his spiritual mentor, Paul? And if you think about it, does it really make sense that Paul would send a young... We know he was still young, right? He says, don't despise him for his youth, right? He says, does it make sense for Paul to send a young, timid man to a place that we've come to see is as challenging as Corinth would be? Now, while most translations read the verses the same way that we see it here in verses 10 and 11... There is another possible way to translate verse 10 in the Greek where Paul is actually emphasizing not, not his timidness, but his fearlessness. It could say this. Okay, this is, remember, we're translating from Greek to the English. And so there are possibilities of different ways for things to be translated. Here's how it could read. If Timothy comes, recognize that he's fearless towards you, for he's doing the Lord's work, as am I. See, this phrase, that the way we have it in the New American or in the ESV, is without cause to be afraid. It's the Greek word aphobos. Paul uses this word in Philippians in his letter to talk about preaching without fear. Right? Most of the brethren, this is Philippians 1.14, most of the brethren have far more courage to, courage to speak the word of God without fear. Aphobos. And so, this actually might be a better translation, this idea that He's not afraid of you guys. I'm sending him to you, and he's not afraid of you. So heads up, you can't intimidate him. He's the Lord's worker, just like I am. So each of them, they share the same burden. Paul and Timothy. They want to speak the truth of Christ to these Corinthians in love. They're not not to badger them and repeat them. Paul wept tears over the letter, the letter that we don't have, that rebuked them thoroughly. right? So this is out of a heart of love that they are not timid and fearless in speaking the truth to them. Because they're going to speak regarding their sinful behavior, their unloving behavior. And they're going to urge them to bring their lives and their relationships and their practices in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so while I think this other translation is better, at the end of the day it doesn't matter. Right, if you go with that translation or the other one. It doesn't matter. The point's the same. In Timothy, Paul has found a true partner in ministry. And if we're to be diligent in the Lord's work, we should all seek to find, as well as to be, faithful, reliable partners in ministry. So when you look over the ministry of Paul, have you noticed that he is always ministering alongside other people? Read through the book of Acts and take note. Here's what you'll find. Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Silas, Paul and Luke, Paul and Aristarchus, Paul and Mark, and Paul and Timothy. At the end of the book of Romans, he devotes the entire chapter 16 to commending a long list of people he sees as co-workers. 24 individuals, two households, the entire chapter. Paul was not one, he was not a one-man show. He depended on the Lord for strength and for wisdom and perseverance, 
but he also depended on other Christians, which included training them up so that they could serve alongside him, just like he did Timothy and Titus. So by way of encouragement and example, let me highlight just this one partner, and I'll I'll wrap this up quickly. This one partner in ministry by the name of Epaphroditus. Now, you might not be familiar with that name, but he played a significant role in biblical history. He was the one who delivered the letter of Philippians to the church. He brought it to them. But there's a story there, right? The church had sent this guy who just got saved. Hey, would you take this letter to Paul, or take this care package to Paul, because he's in prison. And Epaphroditus was like, I'll do it. And he goes there to them. And he not only delivered the gift to Paul from the church, but he went above and beyond his call of duty. In all of his serving of Paul, Epaphroditus became seriously ill, and he almost died. And the Lord graciously preserved him. And after his health was restored, Paul then sent Epaphroditus back to Philippi, Philippi carrying that blessed letter that has blessed generation after generation after generations of Christians. Look with me in Philippians. I want you to see what he said about this normal, everyday dude who was willing to be the Lord's worker. Chapter 2, verse 25. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me. Right? I've sent him all the more eagerly to you so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Right. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. That is a glowing report. He was just a messenger taking a gift of Paul. But to Paul, he was so much more. He was a brother. He was a co-worker. He was a fellow soldier. And if we're going to be diligent for the Lord, we need both to find and to be partners like Epaphroditus was to Paul. You don't have to go to seminary. He did not have a seminary education. He just wanted to be faithful and to be used. He wanted to be in the Lord's work. Let me conclude with just this last thing about this guy, Epaphroditus. His name, Epaphroditus. It means belonging to Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the name of the pagan goddess of love, I think. What a picture of the power of the gospel. When when he received the gospel, he no longer belonged to Aphrodite. He belonged to Jesus. That idol, the pagan life that went with it, had no more claim on him. He had been born again by the power of the Spirit to new life that trumped his old name and his old nature. And the same can be true of you. It doesn't matter what your past consists of. It doesn't matter what life you have lived. It doesn't matter what you have given yourself over to and, the, and, and what was true of you in the past. Because Christ has the power to change you. He has the power to cleanse you. He has the power to make you new. The one who you once despised will receive you to Himself in love. So drop your weapons and bow your knee and confess Him as Lord and put your faith in His death, 
burial, and resurrection as the means of your salvation. And He, in His grace, will even take you and use you to bring His glorious gospel to others. And that is our part. We are to serve Him, and we are to serve Him diligently. Let's pray. Lord, we commit this message that we have all heard to You. We desire that You would keep growing us with the truth of who You are and what You have done so that our response would be one of diligence. Diligence in our service of You. It can't happen, though, just out of...